Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Paul Chang, CEO at the Center for Public Integrity. My name is Anita Tilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Paul, it's fantastic to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about uh, leadership, management, um, and the transformation of the media industry today. And I'm glad to have you as a guest because you bring so many different perspectives on the industry. So I thought, why not start with a big question right at the beginning mm -hmm. and jump right in. Um, you worked in different industries amongst them, you know, digital, mm -hmm. media, uh, philanthropy, funding. How is leadership different in those industries? I would say leadership isn't so different across the different sectors. I think leadership by itself is always a little bit lonely. So I think that is actually true across the different, um, so the different roles I have, whether it's in local, national, for-profit, non-profit. So I think that's the same. I think what is really different is sort of each organization's particular journey as they evolve. I think that's what makes sort of your leadership to that organization different, right? So unfortunately, I'm always being hired to do transformation or turnaround. So I think, you know, <laughs> for the leaders who get hired to sustain growth is very different than the leaders that is here to pivot is very different than the leaders who's here to maintain, right? So I think yeah. that's what makes the leadership different is really the purpose of why they hire you to lead. I think that's actually yeah. vastly different in terms of like leadership, but in terms yeah. of the general architect of the leadership, um, you know, the feeling is it is a little bit lonely at the top. Yeah. And I think you're saying something that a lot of uh, folks can, uh, you know, that resonates with a lot of folks, including myself, because mm -hmm. when I, when I think about my leadership roles, they've always been kind of transformation roles, right? Mm -hmm. Never kind of managing daily operations, mm -hmm. managing quiet waters, always about figuring out what's next, figuring out, mm -hmm. um, how to transform culture, how to transform an organization. Is that something that you, that you seek out consciously? Uh, is that something that's kind of closer to your heart? Do you enjoy that? Like, how should I say that adrenaline of change management as well? Uh, you know, it's hard to say whether I truly enjoy it or not, because the first two years is always tough and it always challenges you to ask yourself, um, am I doing this? I, I would say, you know, for the good and for the bad, I think for many women and for many leaders of color, um, that is The only, that's one of the few paths for us to ascend, right? When something mm. is broken and they need someone else who could think differently, who could, who could carve a different way of, you know, carve a different path forward. I think many times that is our only options, right? Like mm. when something is doing really well and successful, 
how many leaders of colors and women do you see? Just yeah. like, hey, we have this really successful operation. Now we yeah. can hand it off to somebody. I would say, you know, probably less than 10%. I think a majority mm. of us come in to lead during turbulent times because you just need a different sensibility, you know, to move, to move an organization forward. So I would say at the end, I always enjoy what I develop, but during the process, I do ask myself every single day is like, is this what I want? Do I really love doing this? Um, but in looking back, I would say for most of the positions that I have, when I look back, um, I look back with really fond memories because I feel like that's how I learn and that's how I grew. And, you know, something as I, I said to many people, especially here is I feel like journalism in particular, we don't prioritize learning because so much of what we do is really about the output, right? The story, breaking the news, you know, doing the investigation or getting that, um, you know, that, that member to sign up. But, you know, we tend to not look at things that we don't do well. You know, we, we tend to interpret those things as punitive rather than this is a data point. This is actually an opportunity to learn. And so I feel like every time I assume a different role, I'm always trying to prioritize, like, what is my learning? Because there is no such thing called perfect Right. Mm. I'm going to mess up the organization going to mess up. And that's just part of the journey. And, but the important thing is what is it that we learn that we can mitigate that mess up from happening again, or that mess up being more prolonged or, or bigger. Right. So I think that's yeah. sort of um, the fun of it is I feel like I am continuously learning and growing in ways that I haven't imagined before. Yeah, no, that's that, that's that's a fantastic point. And I think we'll get back to that point afterwards on like being reflected and self-reflected as a leader, because I think that's a really important one. The other one that I briefly wanted to touch upon is because I think you, you made an excellent point with this observation that it's mostly uh, people of color and women being brought in when something's broken, like come in and fix it. Now, I do just like you see that that creates exciting job opportunities, but obviously there is also a downside to that, right? There oh, is yeah. obviously, you know, it's also kind of unfair to always be the person brought in when someone else broke something and you are brought in to fix it, often at lower rates or lower salaries, super high expectations that are super hard to fulfill because you're basically supposed to save something that was broken for a long, long time and the culture that often was broken mm -hmm. for a long, long time. So how do we tackle that? Because I'm personally, I'm constantly torn with this because I, I try to spend a lot of my time supporting folks mm -hmm. of color and women to get into those senior executive roles. But I'm also torn because I know sometimes they are set up to fail. Yeah, I, in fact, I wrote about this um, for a um, open news column. Uh, for any Star Trek nerd, there's a term that I reference called the Kobayashi Maru. And basically, you know, that is when you're in a no-win situation. Then what do you do, right? So, you know, again, when I think about those scenarios is, look, as an immigrant, <laughs> like, I just expect life will always be unfair. That is just, it. once you sort of like accepted that, then you're not really chasing what's fair. 
right? You're just chasing, you know, what you believe in. And for me, is any situation I'm in, even when there's no win, there's certain things that I believe. I believe that, you know, for, for CPI, I believe in our mission to expose systems of inequality. Because while other people are doing it, no one is explicit about that in their mission, right? I believe that we want to see more journals of colors as investigative journalists, right? Because we don't see a whole lot of that. So that much I believe. And I think with those beliefs, you just have to forge forward despite whatever sort of tidal wave that you overcome, right? And, and I think, you know, when I think about this scenario, it just really comes back to your core principle that's important, right? Because if you're chasing what's fair, then, then you just end up getting really angry all the time. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I do get angry all the time with the half and half <laughs> not. Yeah. But since majority of my life is living in the half not, I know what I need to do to fight for the half. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it, it does test your character, characters. And I think in some ways, that's why people of color and women are more resilient because we've been through this again and again and again. Now, does that mean we win every single time? No, we won't. But we're going to win something, right? Like, I think, you know, since I've been here for more than 18 months, what I can say is, you know, we went from you know, majority white, majority men over a decade ago to now majority women and majority people of color. So that's a win. In terms of our culture is evolving. I feel like we have unlocked the first layer of DEI, but what is the second layer of DEI? That to me is the excitement in terms of understanding where I could take the organization in ways that other people haven't. Um, so that's both exciting and also daunting, right? Because you never yeah. done it before and, and no one else has. So you feel like, am I doing this right? Or am I going to break things? Totally, totally. And I, I, I do think a lot of what you just said is, is, is a very smart approach to kind of, uh, you know, take on challenges, but also stay sane while doing it. Because mm-hmm. I do think what you said about these these jobs being super daunting, I think that's maybe something that, you know, sometimes deters folks from going for that leadership role because mm-hmm. they feel like, oh my God, I don't want to be that exposed. I don't want to have to fight all the time. I'm tired. I'm, you know, reaching that point constantly of like burning out and feeling that I struggle too much. How do you deal with, like, personally, how do you mm-hmm. deal with that, that feeling of overexposure, that feeling of, you know, needing to build resilience? I think, you know, when I, when I think about that, I feel like it's something I inherited from my family, right? You know, my grandmother, you know, was a, you know, she escaped China during World War II, to Hong Kong, right? And she have to she has to pretend like she was dead, you know, with the corpse so that she could escape, you know, persecution, right? That's resilience. That's in our DNA. My parents decided to leave the country they know to come to America and start a business, doesn't speak English so that they could provide. That's being resilient. And so to me, I feel like part of my resiliency is inherited from, you know, just 
generations of my family dealing with all sorts of different life traumas, right? And so I think that's, I think a lot of it is actually in us in ways that we don't even realize. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. And I think the second thing about building resiliency is, again, it goes back to your core belief is, do you see there's a different outcome, Right. And if you believe that there could be a different outcome, then you have to fight for it because nothing is going to get handed to you. Nothing, right? And, you know, when I see about, you know, being a people of color, like failure is a big thing on my mind because if I fail, do I get another chance, right? But I see lots of people who fail and who got second chance and third chance and four chances. Now, many of them don't look like me, but the question is, why not? Why can't I be one of those who who fail and learn and continuously move upward. So I think part of this is, again, really asking yourself, you know, like, do you believe that there could be an alternative outcome? And if you believe there could be an alternative outcome, then you just have to go go for it. Now, on a day-to-day basis, how I sort of manage some of these um, stresses, I think every single day I do take some time and imagine what my life can be and could it be different And is it one that is better or worse than what I have? So I do sort of like take time to sort of imagine, Mm -hmm. right? Sort of imagine like what happened if I'm not a journalist and I'm just, you know, doing accounting. What happened if I invested in Bitcoin a lot earlier? What will life been? So I think if you sort of like imagine, if you sort of keep your mind active and think about all these different scenarios, like you just end up thinking about like, this is a scenario as well, except that you're living in it, but nothing is predetermined and only you and how you approach the scenario could change. So even in the most dire situation, um, it's not end game because there's always mm. different path for, forward. That's a wonderful way uh, to put it. How do you, now that you're leading, um, leading a larger team, how do you, how do you kind of foster that mindset in your team? Because I feel like specifically with working with diverse teams, also generationally mm-hmm. diverse teams, mm-hmm. um, and also journalists who tend mm-hmm. to spend a lot of time working, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to get them to the point to go to that reflection and to kind of take that step back and to take the day off, specifically when you're working on something mm-hmm. that you're so truly passionate about. How do you work with your team to kind of bring them to that point of resilience and reflection? Well, the fortunate thing about our team is most of them are journalists of colors and they already have a certain sense of resiliency. I think the other part is just being completely ready to be vulnerable um, when it needs to be, right? Because I think a lot of times, you know, the expectation of a leader is to be completely strong and armor proof. And I don't think these type of leadership necessarily work right now. Um, and I think there are times where you just have to be completely vulnerable and say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know, right? Because that invite other people to come up with solutions, um, because you don't know everything. And sometimes it's okay to say, you know what? I'm wrong. And that's fine too, because we are humans, right? And, and there's times where you just need to like tell people the real deal. This is how I'm feeling. I don't think this is working you know, and here's my reasons for it, you know, feel free to tell me otherwise. Right. And then, and there are times where I just think that you don't know what's going on in my head. 
you know, I, you know, I have many things that's going on personally, but I don't bring it to work each and every single mm-hmm. day. So you can't assume that, you know, my mental health is a hundred percent like ready for this every single day. So I think part of it is just really not surprising anyone. I think that's always really hard because communication is so tricky. You don't think you surprise people, but people still feel surprised. So you just have to consistently remind yourself. It's like, it's okay to say, I'm sorry. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's definitely okay to say, I didn't realize this happened. Um, And it's perfectly okay to also say, hey, you know what? I'm just having a bad day. And maybe today is not the day to, to tell me that. Yeah, totally. I know that we talked about uh, your team uh, at Center for Public Integrity being mostly uh, hybrid, remote, Mm -hmm. in that kind of, you know, messy Mm -hmm. space uh, where most organizations are these days, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you deal with that? How does communication work in that space? I see many organizations for whom it's hard to Mm -hmm. kind of work with that new hybrid reality to build that cohesion in the Mm -hmm. team while still giving everyone the freedom they they Mm -hmm. want and they deserve and they need to work when and where they want. How do you Mm -hmm. balance that out? I think it is really difficult. And so it is still evolving. I think, you know, when I first came in, I decided to have the team completely be hybrid and remote because I just, we're a national organization. We shouldn't force people to live in DC, right? And I think after that, like there are small tactics that I try to utilize, right? Like we change the way we, we do the meeting format. So rather than the, you know, editor in chief running their own meeting or me running their own meeting, we sort of, sort of share that meeting with others, meaning that you know, the way we sort of approach it is someone always volunteer to run the meeting and someone will always volunteer to take notes for the meeting. And the note taker end up being the person who run the meeting next. And so I think we sort of even out some of the power dynamics there. And other ways we sort of introduce sort of um, a little bit more um, sort of the in- interpersonal relationship development. I think that's the hardest thing when we do remote is it tends to be really transactional. Um, so what we end up doing is for the first, for the most of last year, what we did is we did a AMA with a staff where the only rule is you cannot ask them about work, right? That's a way sort of to, to develop relationship with people. And we will ask them like, you know, what is we ask like all sorts of like crazy questions to like, what is your worst day to tell me about, you know, your, your favorite food, you know, what your vacation plans are. Because I do think that in a, a remote and hybrid work is very transactional. And I would say eight out of the 10 transactions, it leave people with more questions because for example, you know, in person, you could have a bad meeting, in a meeting, right? But after the meeting, like sometimes you might go grab coffee. You still walk out from the same office together, right? Like things have a way of sort of working mm. itself out because you see that person in and out. In a remote world, like if you have a bad meeting, you carry that feeling and resentment to your next, you know, yeah. Zoom meeting with them. And so I think that's a really hard nut to crack. And so, you know, one thing that um, we did um, attribute it to our chief of staff, Jin, is each of us 
produce a what we call our user manual that we share with the whole team. And the user man- manual is just really a thing about like this is how I operate, and here's the best way to manage me, and this is the best way to, for you to give me feedback, right? Like some of the stuff I put in user manual is. Don't tell me bad news on Friday because literally um, you're gonna make me think about it on a weekend that I'm supposed to be recharged, right? So like, if you have bad news, tell me Monday rather than fi- Friday, right? So there's things like that where I feel like we have to put in, we have to double the effort of how we communicate with each other. I also put in a rule saying that if we can't resolve a conflict in three Slack messages or three emails do a video call because you're just going to let these feelings prolong. So I think, you know, a lot of this sort of remote work is still being worked out, right? Because journalism is not like tech where like coders could code individually and they do a review. Like a lot of times it does take a lot of like interpersonal relationship to get something done together. Um, So I think this is still like a process that's evolving. Yeah, but it seems what many of the points you're making have to do with a certain amount of empathy and mm-hmm. very kind of deliberate, mm-hmm. uh, conscious communication, right? More so than in a purely in-person setting where you can have that water cooler conversation and that spontaneous debrief of a mm-hmm. meeting or something right after the meeting. Yeah, because sometimes so probably, like, after yeah. Zoom, a bad Zoom, you can't just go back and just like, hey, can I talk to you like that? You know, like where at work is sort of like you could run them just like, hey, you know, I totally I realized the meeting didn't go the way we think. Like, let's go grab a cup of coffee. Right. It's hard to have like Zoom on top of Zoom. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, about creating like organizations as spaces where Mm -hmm. people work, because obviously in your past, you worked in various industries, you worked Mm -hmm. in different organizations, sometimes as the person designing, uh, mm-hmm. right in your position now, you basically are as the CEO designing mm-hmm. the, the, the culture, the framework, the processes mm-hmm. uh, in the organization together with your team. And sometimes you were in organizations as an employee and someone mm-hmm. else designed that culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn about culture throughout that years, those years, organizational culture? What are some things that you're now trying to build um, into the culture of the organization now that you are the CEO of an organization that maybe you experienced in other organizations you worked at where you felt like, huh, this is something I really want to copy once Mm -hmm. I run my own thing, or this is something that I really do not want to copy, that I want to do better if I'm in charge? Yeah, I think one thing that people... Um, sort of underestimate in terms of culture is the subculture, right? Because I think many people talk about like, well, we have a company culture of X, Y, Z. That company culture really only exists at the very, very top, right? And and I think what I learned, you know, over the years that depending on where you at is the culture actually diffuses down very differently. And each team will have their own interpretation of what the culture is, and they might have a separate co- culture, right? So it's almost like within one ecosystem exists many different ecosystem and they could all be, um, they might, and, and some of these ecosystem are set up in a way that is meant to be divergent from each other, right? But we have the tendency, just like, well, we were one same same company. And, you know, 
And but within the same company, you have people doing different things. And sometimes these things are set up inherently to produce conflict, right? So, so part of it is sort of like accepting, like really, you know, there's this, this basically phrase that I, I learned from like, like a TV drama, like I was watching like a period drama, like, and they saying that like, it is very hard to say that what's right and what's wrong. It's just a matter of different perspective. And sometimes these perspective is because of where you sit in the organizations. So I think like, again, like the whole notion of like right and wrong to me is like, is very tricky because it, to me, mm. it, it's much harder like to have that because you have to sort of put yourself into the perspective of that individual to say, why did they come to the same conclusion? How did they come to this conclusion versus the other conclusion? Right. So I think, you know, part of the organization culture is really understanding what are the subcultures, right. And sometimes there's very little you could do with the subcultures, right. Like, you know, think about some of the new people in journalism, like like the product and audience team, right? Like in some way, they're inherently there, and they're gonna be in, they're gonna have their own culture, and then the newsroom, the journalist itself, gonna have a culture, and they're gonna be skeptical of these like product people. Like, who are these people? Are they here to tell me what I should be doing? Like, that's not how journalism works, right? They're not wrong and the product people are not wrong. They just sit in different part of the organization. So I think part of that is how do you sort of help everyone through like a series of what I call micro alignments to get them to see the same target rather than saying that like you might occupy different spaces and you might see different version of the reality and they all could be true, right? I think it's basically accepting that like there are different version of reality, but they could all be true and yeah. not true at the same time. I know this And is, I love, no, I love the word. I love the work. Yeah. No, no, I love the work micro alignments. I've like that really resonates. And I feel like it's a, it's an, it's a much nicer way to say translation mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, bringing folks intersectional folks together at the table mm -hmm. to do interdisciplinary work and to really empathize with each other. So I love micro alignments and maybe, maybe it also builds on what you just mentioned before, when you talked about leadership and the perception of leadership changing, right? That you're mm -hmm. not necessarily the strongest person in the room, the person who knows everything, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you're the person who makes those micro alignments, who yeah. makes those translations. And I think it's important. And that's where the culture of learning is really important, right? Because I think a lot of times, you know, journalism in the U.S. is such a machinery where I don't know how many of us actually question the way we approach things time and time and time and time again, right? So recently, like one of the big, you know, dilemma that I sort of face is, Why are certain grants get executed better than others? Why do some grants create more dramas? And then I sort of like sit back and really think about it. I'm like, oh, there's certain grants, like grants that are focused on, you know, a story. That part, like everyone knows how to do, right? Like, so, you know, unrestricted grant, that's easy. Grants that is not really about producing the story, but about something else, oh, this seems to run itself again and again and again because what I realize is a lot of people don't know what is their role in it because it's not clearly defined. And mm. so to me, I'm like, yeah, it was messy. It was painful and people's feelings are hurt. 
And I get that, but now I'm sort of thinking about like, okay, but that also point to me that however way we're managing this is not working and it, yeah. we need to redo it again. And the second time, I'm hoping that it will have better result, but I don't think the second time, a different processes will necessarily fix everything, right? So I think part of this is like, do you allow yourself that space to learn from mistakes and be able to move on quickly? And again, how do you frame sort of um, mistakes as learning, right? And I think that's something where like I talked about like this year, just like we need to not be fearful of making mistakes. You know, making mistakes is just part of life, but we have to know sort of like what happened, right? Like, you know, not to question it is also wrong, but take the questions as a way for us to learn, right? Because from the learning, that's how we could grow because yeah. we can't learn and we can't grow. And I do find that, I find this part like super passionate like about, because I think that's something where in general, I think journalism is really bad at doing because it's just the connotation, right? When we make a mistake, it has mm. consequences, right? Like we have to issue a correction, right? We have to sometimes, you know, when, when I was working at the Wall Street Journal a million years ago, when they make a mistake, it moves the market, right? So I understand why journalists equate mistakes as something detrimental and something super punitive. But I think, you know, right now, we cannot interpret the same way because journalism yeah. is evolving, is evolving in ways that is much quicker. And so we have to stay agile. And part of that agility is actually, do we have the muscle memory to continuously learn and adapt? And I yeah. do think this is a fundamental problem that we see in journalism because journalism is so rooted in certain processes that we lose our muscle memory. We lose sort of our instinct to evolve and adapt. Yeah. I, I love that you say that because I really truly feel so last last episode I talked with with Hillary Fry, who's mm -hmm. not an editor in chief at Slate, and she said that for her, one of the major tools to drive transformation in the newsroom, also cultural transformation, are actually processes. Uh, and it's so funny because I think for so many, many years, when I said the word processes or frameworks or structure to journalists, you could basically see their, you know, their face go like, oh my God, processes, that does not sound like fun, right? But I do feel also what you just said about dealing with mistakes and dealing with failure. Well, the interesting thing is to do that properly and to actually learn from it you need to have a process and you mm -hmm. need to develop a process to become agile. You need to develop a process to learn from those mistakes, right? So I do feel it, I, I find it quite interesting that many of the leaders I talk to in this podcast kind of surface this question of processes and rethinking processes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think that, that there is something there that is that is changing in the industry. Yeah, in some way it's not changing fast enough, right? Because yeah. I think... When we think about processes, again, I, I find that because now I'm not producing content, I do feel that the perfection is what's hampering growth and change in journalism, right? Because I think journalists always look for that perfect story, right? Editors are like the entire process of journalism is about refinement, refinement to have this product as perfect as they see. And I think you know, sometimes when I ask for like, could we be doing this? 
people just sort of like, well, we have to make it like X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just looking for the minimal viable product, right? So I think, you know, our processes in journalism, if we don't allow chaos and we don't allow for for mistakes and we don't allow for failure, we will always sort of like get stuck in where we at now because we, we could mm. never truly transform journalism out of the crisis, right? Because when I think about all of these price, you know, processes is, it's true. We have never really tackled some of these mainframe problems of journalism, right? Like the way we think about what constitutes as a good journalist, right? The ways that we think about the business of journalism, right? And, you know, last year when I wrote a Neiman prediction and when I um, have the privilege of talking to um, Alberto at night, um, when I, after I left night and I say, you know, what I learned is CPI is not in the business, same business of journalism because our mission is about inequality. So we need to be in the mission of impact making because for journalism, traditional journalism business model is a business of eyeballs, right? Like advertiser will advertise with you because you have the most eyeballs, like in a local market or national market, right? But now advertisers have a lot more choices, right? They could have, they could be advertising with CNN, they could be advertising with New York Times, they could be advertising in Netflix, right? Or social media platform. That's a business of eyeballs. Yeah. CPI can never compete in that business. So we have to think of ourselves in a different business. And if we are in a different business and journalism is our tool and our tactic, then how do we reframe our entire process for a new business that we are in, right? And I think not enough people really think of think about like what is the business we're in, and are we in the same business as the New York Times? No, we are producing content like the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. But we're in a very different business. Yeah. Since you touched on the 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 philanthropic angle here, let's stick with that for a while because part of your career you spent at Knight Foundation. Mm-hmm funding journalism initiatives and journalism adjacent uh, mm-hmm. initiatives is how I'd put it. And um, philanthropy, obviously, is a big player in how journalism is reshaped and the mm-hmm. journalism landscape is reshaped. Now, let's talk a little bit about what you just said when it comes to processes and culture and teaching organizations to be agile and mm-hmm. to learn that agility. Is philanthropy funding the right things if we see that this as a priority? Is philanthropy really shifting the needle of how processes work, of how newsrooms are structured, of how audiences are reached? Or is that also a process that is a change process on the philanthropic side, on the foundation side that's happening? So I, what I would say about philanthropy is it has been catalytic and having people think differently because without philanthropy, I don't think we will see sort of a, a robust growth of the nonprofit sector, right? Without philanthropy, we will not see an organization like News Product Alliance being able to get spin off from, you know, um, you know, from a conversation in open news, right? Without philanthropy, we won't see people like, like, um, 
you know, like the outlier media, right? And MLK 50, right? So I think in some way, philanthropy is crucial in terms of being catalytic because so much of philanthropy, people sometimes misunderstood the purpose of philanthropy, right? Because people say, oh, I'm here to get a grant to do this project. But a lot of philanthropy is actually about learning, right? Like what is it they could learn from the grant so that they could carry that learning forward for someone else? So for example, you know, when I, when I was at night, even before when I was at night, you know, they funded a lot of podcast project, right? Um, back in the maybe like earlier 2000s. And then podcast sort of went in a low. And then by the time I came along is, oh, you know, podcast is now back up. And so often I have to go back in terms of what did we learn from the first time we invested in podcasts? What are some of the lessons learned that now we could basically use as a mitigation factor for this time around, right? What did we learn that we could see from, from the learning? We could see like, did the market make the adjustment, right? Did the market actually learn and adapt in itself? So I think, you know, when we think about philanthropy, I, I do frame it in a bit of, here's the things that I'm learning. And a lot of times when I pitch philanthropy right now, I mean, I feel like if I go back to philanthropy, I would be like a much, much better funder. <laughs> because now like the way I present is I'm like, okay, I, I believe there's a problem to identify. And here's like the insight that I learned. And here's some of the learning questions that I want to explore. And so part of the grant is to structure in a way for me to work on a problem and deliver the, the learning, right? Because they know that for like 100,000, for 200,000, even like 500,000, you're not going to solve the world of journalism. But what is it that you could solve and what is it they could mm. learn? Because the more they learn, the more they could be able to guide the next wave of philanthropy, right? So uh, the next wave of grants. So I feel like, the culture of learning is very important in philanthropy. And it's one that I don't feel like they talk enough mm. to their grantees, right? Because if the grantees know, the type of grants that people will be pitching will be vastly different. Yeah. And I do agree. I do agree with the, the, the fact that this is the culture of learning and basically that mindset of experimentation mm -hmm. that is of long-term capacity building in mm -hmm. a way, not just for the organization that gets the grant, but also for surrounding organizations, if those learnings are shared with the yeah. wider industry, is actually one of the amazing effects. I just don't see that very often that this kind of, you know, learning and share your learnings um, and kind of, you know, spread the word mm -hmm. of what you learn throughout that grant. I don't see that embedded quite often in philanthropic grants yet. So maybe that is something that could be adjusted, yeah. right? I mean, the thing they do is like they evaluate the grants. I mean, the thing is philanthropy is both um, at the moment, but also take a sort of like institution lens where sometimes you don't know what the learning is until maybe even a decade later. Yeah. Right. And because they have to look at like, here's all the money they invested. What did they learn from the past decade of doing X, Y, Z? And so I feel like how do we bridge that delta is, is important. And I, and I've been thinking a lot about sort of philanthropy and, and economic, right. And one thing I, I, often wonder is, you know, philanthropy, who's supposed to be the most sort of risk tolerant in some way, they're pretty risk averse as well. Right. Yeah. So when we think about, you know, when the market is downturn, 
right? The, the narrative is, okay, the endowment take a, take a hit, so they're going to contract in terms of the way they are giving. And I'm just thinking about, you know, for all the talk about sustainability, is that a good strategy when philanthropy yeah. and individual donor actually give in the same sort of... Um, Cycle in a way. Of yeah. like the market. And I'm just thinking about what does the inverse relationship look like, right? Like in some ways, nonprofit, and now I'm in nonprofit, is we have never really truly learned how to weather a, a economic storm, right? We sort of sort of live from year to year. Like when things are good, we expand really quickly. When things are bad, suddenly we have to like do drastic measure to stay alive. Yeah. And to me, that's actually something that's very different from for-profit that I wish that we could um, sort of like, you know, we think about the processes, right? Like if I were to, you know, because now I'm like been in this world for like a little bit more than a year and a half, I'm sort of thinking about in the good times, how do we build up a long-term reserve that could become more self-sustaining and and build more resiliency during the good times so that we could weather the downturns, right? So I think the 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 balancing art of resilience and growth is something that every single leaders have to be able to learn and balance, right? Because yeah. if I suddenly inherit a windfall, how do I pre-negotiate that certain amount needs to be put away so that on economic downturn, when I know that people are less giving, then I know that I'm not, you know, have to like do any drastic measure. I mean, literally last year, um, I told my team, my entire team, I'm just like, there will be an economic downturn and it's going to hurt us. What success look like for CPI is if I don't have to lay anyone off. I was very point blank, right? Some people were just sort of like, <laughs> I don't know if it's a good thing you tell people that, you know, that might scare folks, that might scare talent. And I'm just like, listen, as an immigrant whose job security is always in question when I see that from my parents, I don't want anybody to be surprised, especially in journalism, right? The more they know, the more we could sort of think about how do we weather this, right? And, and the last thing I want to do is just telling people we're fine. And then we say, oh, we're not fine. Absolutely. And I, I, I really, Paul, I really, really love that point that you made about like balancing, balancing, balancing sustainability and kind of long-term organizational health and growth. Mm -hmm. And I do feel sometimes, and it's a very US specific debate, right? Because the rest of the world does not have that nonprofit for-profit status in mm -hmm. the exact same way the US does have it. So I feel like sometimes uh, that distinction of, you know, there is the nonprofit world and there is the for-profit world and they do not have anything to do with each other and they better should not learn from each other. Sometimes I wonder whether that's detrimental to the debate because I think what you are, yeah, yeah, because what you are talking about is actually nonprofit learning from some for-profit tactics mm -hmm. and for-profit learning from some nonprofit tactics. Yeah. I mean, at the end, whether you call it nonprofit, for profit is a tax code, right? The fundamental of money hasn't changed. Yeah. The fundamental of how journalism gets support hasn't changed, right? Someone has to pay for the bill. It's either a, a individual, which could be a member or a subscriber or a donor to some other entity, right? Whether we call them foundations or advertisers, right? Like, in some ways, like someone always have to pay for the bill until the system of money change, 
like whether you're for profit or nonprofit, it doesn't really change. Yeah. Right. I think in some way for profit has a better, you know, in, in traditionally, I think they have a better system of weathering downturn than nonprofits. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, for profit had gone so over to sort of like, you know, catering to the shareholder, they lost sort of like their sensibility of like, what is the mission of journalism, right? And how does journalism as a product translate into sort of, um, sort of like market competition, right? Because they never had to compete in the same ways as Netflix or Hulu, but now they are, right? So I think that's really the challenge. And in some ways, like, you know, this year I sort of, Again, when I talk to folks in my team, I'm like, when we think about any project, my equation is really simple. Supply plus demand equal opportunity. You know, if we were to create this supply, is there a demand? And if there's no demand, then our supply is is irrelevant, right? And a lot of times I think for profit, what they did, I feel like what for profit did the worst is they completely have that separation between editorial and business. So you have a group of people who actually, you know, where their sense of mission is so completely different than the other side, you know, of of the business and, and not knowing that relationship of money is terrible, and I think in nonprofit, we do a better job in between editorial and business size, understanding the, the relationship of money, the strings that get attached to money. That's important, but it is attention, right? So I feel like we could learn from each other a lot. Great. Thanks so much for, for, for clarifying that and expanding on that. We're nearly at the end. So last question, Paul. Um, if you could talk to your younger self, you at the beginning of your career, what is something that you'd share with yourself about leadership, about careers, about work? What is something that you wish you knew that younger Paul knew? I would say, um, no, it's funny because like when everyone is younger, they think, oh, if you ascend to become a department head or even a CEO, you have like all these powers. You could do, you could really do things and make changes. And, and I would say like, what I find is the higher up you go, you have more power, but you really don't because a lot of times people try to like hide information from you. They all have a, their own perspective of how they want you to leverage your power, right? So I think like one of my advice, you know, to my younger self is it's just going to be 10 times slower than when you are the <laughs> <laughs> Like when you're at the top, things will move even slower, than when you're in the front line, right? Because when you're in the front line, you produce a thing, it gets published, you see it. When you're a leader, sometimes it just takes a long time for anything to move and you have to be even more patient with yourself. And just know that, um, you know, and then that's the other advice that I would give to myself is like, just know that there will always be someone who's mad at you and it's okay. (laughs) That's amazing advice. Yeah, because as a leader, I just feel like this whole like mythical, you know, notion that like everyone, you know how everyone is just like, I'm going to be a different leader and everyone's going to love me. That is never going to happen. That's never going to (laughs) happen. So someone will always be mad at you as something, whether it's, you know, is legitimate or not. I think being okay with someone is already mad at you is actually pretty healthy. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for that, those two pieces of advice, but also in general, thank you for being a guest here today, Paul. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link 